Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by World Anvil. It takes a lot of energy, precision, and effort to hang a satellite in orbit above our atmosphere, but it takes even more to hang one inside our atmosphere. So today we'll be looking at placing satellites and even non-moving objects in ultra-low orbits, or even beneath the common line, the edge of outer space in the main atmosphere, and to do that we need to start by explaining why we don't now and why we want to. Many folks mistakenly believe there is no gravity on the space station because it's way out in space, an enormous distance from Earth. In reality, the ISS and most of our satellites are as close to Earth as we can possibly put them before atmospheric drag slows them down too much for them to remain in orbit. Gravity is an inverse square force, meaning it's proportional to the square of the distance from the center of the planet, and the ISS is only 254 miles or so up, just 6% farther from the Earth's center than you are, so the gravity there is only 13% weaker than what's holding you down right now. So if the ISS is at 0.87g, why doesn't it fall? Well, it is falling, but as Isaac Newton famously illustrated, if you travel fast enough over the surface of a planet, you'll fall toward it at the same rate it curves away from you, so you'll keep falling around it indefinitely, a situation we call being in orbit. If you were to move at about Mach 23, just 3% faster than the ISS does, you could in theory orbit the Earth and experience weightlessness, inches above the surface but in practice you'd run into three critical problems. The first is that Earth isn't smooth or perfectly spherical, it bulges out of the equator and has all kinds of features sticking up for you to slam into, like mountains. The second is that things like oceans and crusts have very different densities, so the Earth's gravitational field isn't perfectly spherical, so your orbit won't be perfectly circular and will intersect with the surface at some point. And the third barrier to ultra-low Earth orbit is that you're slamming into all that air, which slows you down fast. Loosely speaking, air particles colliding with an object sap energy out of that moving object with the square velocity, 10 times faster, 100 times the energy lost from each collision with an air particle. You're also moving 10 times as fast though, so you run into those particles 10 times as often meaning your power loss actually runs at more like the cube of your velocity. Orbital speed is on an order of 8 kilometers or 5 miles per second in low orbit or Earth atmosphere, about 100 times what your car is doing on a highway. 100 times as fast, 100 cubed or 1 million times the power loss, draining away your speed and requiring you either to burn fuel or let your orbit decay. This is why those satellites are up there, above it all. At sea level, the density of air is about 1.23 kilograms per cubic meter. At the carbon line, what we usually call the edge of our atmosphere in space, 100 kilometers up, air density has dropped to 567 micrograms per cubic meter, 2 million times thinner than at sea level. Even that altitude is too low for most satellites, allowing orbital times fall shorter than the useful lifetime of a satellite, so we go higher. 
Low Earth orbit is usually at least twice the height of the common line, and the lowest satellite I'm familiar with is JAXA's Tsubami Super Low Altitude Test Satellite that was up for about two years from 2017 to 2019 and was at 167 kilometers of altitude. I put that qualifier on there because we try to keep spy satellites as close to Earth as possible for best viewing, and thus the country might have broken that record, though likely not by much, and wouldn't want to publicly claim they had. Even just dipping down to that height at the perigee of your very elliptical orbit is going to take a lot of operation time out of your satellite. Perigee incidentally is when an orbiting object is closest to Earth, apogee when it's furthest, when that orbit isn't circular. The stratosphere, which ends 50 to 60 kilometers up, is even denser, no less than a thousand times thicker than what is up at the common line. So stratospheric satellites hanging up there by simple orbital mechanics isn't really doable, even for a single rotation. They need power, and a lot of it, very much more than it would take to simply get into orbit. Now it's not that tricky to stay at the common line briefly, but we're usually talking minutes, not years, and at much lower speeds. The current altitude record for a rocket plane of 102 kilometers has been held by Brian Binney since 2004, but Joseph Walker first crossed the common line at 106 kilometers way back in 1963 in the X-15, but neither was getting up to orbital speed. The X-15 for instance barely got up to a quarter that velocity on its 11 minute flight covering 543 kilometers, just over a percent of Earth's circumference. Spaceship One, in 2004, actually went slower, it just got higher and claimed the record. Simply shoving against air at hypersonic speeds is not an optimal way to keep something up. You might do better by simply hovering on a rocket engine at 1G at the chosen altitude, because then it's just fighting gravity, not air drag, and then with modern rocket fuels you might keep something up for a handful of minutes. Indeed, how many seconds you can keep something hovering under normal Earth gravity is what we measure specific impulse in for rockets, and the favorite ones nowadays run 250 to 500 seconds. Something to keep in mind is that we obviously can't hang things lower and slower for longer, like a helicopter or a plane or a balloon, and we will return to that, however we also shouldn't casually rule out much higher specific impulses altering the landscape. Nuclear rockets or fusion rockets might do much better, and a satellite crammed full of antimatter or a micro-black hole might have no problem remaining static above the landscape or in low orbits for months or years before needing to come down for repairs and refueling. We also can't dismiss that some form of anti-gravity might get developed at some point too. Nonetheless, let's keep to the assumption that if our object is orbiting, it is doing so above the common line, and if we want to go lower, we are not having the objects moving at 8 kilometers per second, at least not on the outside. One example of ultra-low orbital infrastructure we could potentially build is an orbital ring, which is essentially a hoop around the Earth that remains stationary with the ground, and inside it there's a flow of matter moving faster. This matter moving faster than normal orbital speed has an excess of angular momentum, which when combined with the stationary or slow spinning sheath around it gives the pair of them just the right angular momentum to remain in orbit together. This mass stream is usually assumed to be magnetically contained and accelerated with a power supply hooked up from ground or attached. This is called active support and is a good option when it comes to low sky options, including ones connected to the ground. 
Now when it comes to helicopters, those might technically count as another low sky option, as those remain stationary by shoving air down constantly, but helicopters run out of fuel and thus would need to land a lot, but they could be ran on electricity and that could be via ultra-lightweight helicopters running on attached solar panels or even a tethered power cord to a groundside nuclear plant, or energy beamed up by microwaves from the ground or down from orbital power satellites. Solar by itself is non-optimal in most cases because of night and clouds. Electric quadcopters, common in modern aerial drones, probably would only be an option for continuous running if they are either inside a wireless power grid or if we invented batteries that have orders of magnitude better power density than modern ones. Some more power-dense nuclear battery or radioisotope thermal generators might permit this. Such solar helicopters would work better on low-gravity thick air places like Saturn's moon Titan or even a place like Venus where the world turns so slowly you can keep up with the sun setting and never lose your solar so long as you stay above the clouds. Now you can use motion to produce lift on a wing, like any airplane's airfoils, but if you wish to remain stationary you need to keep it in a tight circle above the spot you want. This works well enough and we do have unmanned planes, able to fly constantly on solo these days, but they'd need a lot more improvements before they could fill the role of communications or surveillance. Now weather satellites tend to be high orbitals, and are an example that not every satellite benefits from being lower, but options like circling planes or balloons are very tempting alternatives to satellites or tall towers for objectives like communications. One key thing about altitude that does benefit you is that's a wider range of view. Folks tend to assume, incorrectly, that up on the space station you can see the whole planet, or at least the whole hemisphere you're facing. In reality, it's a circle containing about 3% of Earth's surface at any given moment, not 50%, at its altitude of about 400 kilometers. With the rule of thumb that if you take the square root of your height in feet and multiply it by 1.22, that's how many miles you can see, or the square root of meters of height multiplied by 3.57 for kilometers, that is a rule of thumb that works for determining how far away the horizon is when your altitude is much less than the radius of the planet you are on, and even the space station is only about 6% of the Earth's radius above the planet. Now a communications satellite up in geostationary orbit, 36,000 kilometers up, is high enough to see most of a hemisphere, 42% of a planet, and it can usually get everything from 81 degrees north and south, and since it is geostationary, it sees the same 42% of Earth all the time. However, that does mean it takes a quarter of a second for a signal to reach that satellite from the ground and return to another spot in its zone and longer if it had to bounce it around to another geostationary satellite, that might be a quarter of a second away too. That means if you were talking to someone on a satellite phone on the other side of the planet, you could get half a second from when you spoke to when they heard you, and at least a quarter of a second for anyone, even just down the road, and that would be very irritating. Whereas someone using a fiber optic cable or bouncing between low orbit satellites can bring that down to a fraction of that time and a very tiny one if they are just down the road, signal lags too small for a human to notice. Cell phone towers can only see as far as their height permits, though that distance would obviously be further than their height, and that tends to be especially limiting in places with hills and valleys. Now in the future we could probably build them more economically by building them higher than we currently do, 
but there's an understandable desire to contemplate things hanging many kilometers up. Now, kites are an option, as are any sort of engine powered by a tether running electricity from the ground, but such tethers are dangerous to airplanes and would need lights like a tower does and are also probably prone to snapping and falling on the landscape. That really shouldn't be fatal to anyone it hits directly, getting hit by a whip isn't usually lethal and whip tips cracking in the air only do so because they are moving supersonically and a falling cable would be moving slower, but definitely a hazard. A hot air balloon would seem the next option, or just one full of helium or hydrogen, and needing no fuel, which would allow rather great heights. We have gotten manned balloons over 40 kilometers before and unmanned ones up to 53 kilometers. From 40 kilometers up, you can see 714 kilometers or 444 miles to the horizon around, bigger than Texas, and at 53 kilometers you can see 822 kilometers or 511 miles around. This also means you're getting signals even down the shadows of cliffs. Now a cell phone tower can be up to 500 watts per channel, though usually they're under 100 watts, and the taller ones can give service over 40 miles away, and we obviously need a stronger signal for higher reaches and more sensitivity on the receiving end. Aircraft rarely go above 8 miles or 11 kilometers up, so if you put out a lot of helium or hydrogen balloons at 10 miles or 16 kilometers up, They'd have a range of 280 miles or 450 kilometers, essentially one could service an entire state or medium-sized nation. This doesn't really interest us for the width of its service area though, more than it cuts down on relays and signal dead zones and valleys. In theory, a thousand such stationary balloon comm stations could cover a whole planet. In practice, you'd probably want several times that. Picture something like this as a big floating flower, covered in solar panels or a big antenna hanging from a balloon but tethered to the ground. Either power is running up or it's getting it by solar or both, or wind power if the tether is strong. Why don't we already do this? Well, a number of reasons, but maybe the big one is that helium leaks and is very expensive, and hydrogen leaks even faster. Also, if you want the stations to stay stationary, they either need that tether or a powerful engine, or they need an airfoil and the ability to circle. Hydrogen is a better buoyant lifting gas than helium and vastly easier and cheaper to supply, and no, we are not worried about it igniting Hindenburg style. But the problem is that hydrogen and helium are the two tiniest atoms out there, and they tend to slip between the molecules of whatever the skin of your ship is as a result, being smaller than those atoms. Worse, while helium is a noble gas and doesn't interact with any other atoms, hydrogen interacts with tons of stuff and in this context, interact tends to mean corrodes. 2D materials like graphene have tight spacing that can hold in helium or hydrogen and thus are getting looked at as a coating for hydrogen tanks and permits potentially ultra-thin balloons that would need far less frequent replacement or really in for recharging. Indeed, you might be able to replace hydrogen while up there, given that it's a lot more prevalent in ionized atomic form at higher altitudes, and might be collected electromagnetically or, with sufficient power, electrolyzed from water vapor. With a strong power supply you could also heat a gas up to make it a better lifting gas, and electrolyzing it would have that dual effect. Amusingly, the material we love for ultra-strong tethers is also graphene and of course is the reason why we don't see these kind of balloons yet. We were not good at mass manufacturing large sheets of graphene, though way better than in previous years. 
It's also a very good conductor and very promising for integration into solar cells. However, we do have other modern materials that do very good jobs compared to when satellites and cell phones were fairly new, and that will take us to the Dark Sky Station in a moment. First though, two other interesting options. It may be that we figure out how to do a fusion sooner than later, in which case we might opt for a deuterium-filled balloon that had a fusion reactor running on that deuterium, and that probably could just sit there in the sky, even in the middle of hurricanes or the great red spot on Jupiter. Indeed, it would strike me as a likely option for a gas harvesting station on gas giants, since that implies you have fusion if you want the stuff in such quantities. Non-rotating skyhooks are another option, as with good tether technology, you can hang a satellite rather low, while having most of its weight and power generation higher up, and as we discussed in our Skyhooks episode, it is possible to regenerate momentum, lost atmospheric drag, by electrodynamically tethering off Earth's magnetic field, with a power supply. This is slow and low power, but Skyhooks can also qualify as ultra-low orbital infrastructure since their lower end, or bottom of their rotation for spinning ones, is usually assumed to dip below the Kalman line. They also work even better on thin-aired or no-atmosphere worlds, and Earth isn't the only place we're interested in, see that episode for more details. But this is one option for stratospheric satellites, the long skyhook hanging some instruments into the stratosphere, or for that matter, a high-altitude balloon hanging a guidance package tens of kilometers lower. This latter is the Stratosat, which imagines a wide balloon gondola 35 kilometers up, with a tether hanging down to 14 to 20 kilometers up, with guidance systems and devices hanging from it. How this is handy is that, at the end of that tether, you can hang a wing, and that huge difference in velocity between wind at that altitude and up at the gondola lets you guide the thing and circle the Earth in about 10 to 20 days, and it would rarely exceed speeds of 40 meters per second or 90 miles per hour. More and better materials help, but these stratosats are not terribly sophisticated and we can make them now. They are principally of interest for meteorology, and if you want more details on them, there was an article on them in the American Meteorological Society's August 2009 edition, Stratospheric Satellites for Earth Observations. We could make them a lot bigger though, and they would be a relatively easy thing for the airplane to perform a mid-air docking maneuver on, potentially even down where unassisted breathing was still possible. The 14 to 20 kilometer altitude for the bottom is to avoid air traffic, and bigger and more sophisticated ones could have a winch on their tether to lower it more. Now if you're hanging from such a balloon, not only can you climb up it, but you can also use it as a track for accelerating up, pulling the balloon down, but a donut shaped and large wide balloon might let you speed up its tether to reach higher velocities while pulling it down a ways, then it just floats back up later after you release and fly up. Think of it like a vertical mass driver. Now just flying straight up does not get you into orbit, but you can push into a high eccentricity orbit this way, or just shove to the side a bit and glide back down elsewhere on the planet for a relatively fast and low fuel flight. I haven't encountered this particular approach in this specific form before, so we'll go ahead and name it a Stratotram, unless someone knows of someone detailing it or naming it before, as it's fairly similar to a cable car and also a bit parallel to the Staltram mass driver. It benefits over simply lifting a space plane on a balloon 
because you are coming out the top at high velocity, not just floating up there. As I often note about orbital rings, the cool thing about them is they are also useful for rapid travel around your own planet, and so is a strato tram, and anything that is highly beneficial to folks living on Earth is excellent for space development and travel in general. Now the Dark Sky Station, or DSS, from JP Aerospace, tries to take this notion of buoyancy beyond classic balloons. The concept is fairly straightforward. We take some long cylinder-shaped balloons, five of them, and arrange them like a starfish around a hub, and cover the tops of the balloons in solar panels for energy. It hangs up at just under 43 kilometers of altitude and is the midway point for their approach to space travel, which involves two giant ascenders. The first is a large V-shaped vessel designed to be both buoyant and aerodynamically lifting, so it floats but has propellers too, and this thing is huge, solar powered, and designed to lift that dark sky station. At the DSS, folks disembark and shift over to the orbital ascender, which is too fragile to exist in a lower atmosphere, being hyperthin and large and again, solar powered. It begins a 9 day journey to orbital heights while accelerating slowly to orbital speeds as the air thins. I think it's awesome, but I suspect folks would view it as more of an eyesore over options like an orbital ring or a space tower, which are a lot more compact and rapid in terms of cargo carrying. Orbital rings can be that low, in the stratosphere or even troposphere, and space towers can be built that high, and indeed the Lostrum loop design essentially lets you make a long runway that you can lift or lower to basically any altitude you want. That same technology lets you lift a highway or parking lot or even a city. You might build a big long tube or track across a continent, hanging in the stratosphere for trains or even pressurized personal car planes to whip across from coast to coast at high speeds and low fuel usage. Refineries in high orbit can potentially be grabbing up air to be used on space stations or as a propellant or fuel too, not optimal in the extreme long run, but Earth has supplies of these that are many orders of magnitude greater than we would need for even our very large orbital infrastructure and habitats. Plus, air-breaking cargo pods makes replenishing Earth's air supply from distant mining colonies easier and cheaper than shipping air from those to orbital colonies. Now will there ever be an ultra-low orbit or stratospheric infrastructure? Yes. Though I'd imagine the bigger objects will rely on active support rather than buoyancy, this might be the kind we envision with orbital rings or space towers, or it might be that the entire planet is saturated in a wireless energy field provided by millions of power satellites beaming microwaves down from medium orbit so that personal space planes could travel without needing to carry fuel or giant hanging turbines could suspend themselves in the sky for years at a time. So too, microwave-powered scramjets might allow genuine orbits by sheer brute force, all the way down to the carbon line though simply hanging in the air like a geostationary satellite but far closer will often be preferable. And no, you don't really need to worry about these things crashing, you just include a battery, good for several minutes, or a parachute, or both. Amusingly, graphene, our wonder substance, also allows for superior batteries and super large and strong parachutes that make silk look heavy and fragile. It also represents a fallback option against Kessler Syndrome, as a civilization that found its orbital infrastructure had caused debris cascade could opt to move things a bit lower, ensuring a far more rapid clearance of debris and protection from it. Such being the case, why not build in the stratosphere? 
We often talk about filling Earth's orbits all the way out past the Moon, with millions of orbital habitats and power collectors, and in a distant future, why leave a gap? In the future we might have buildings stretching all the way up to space, and we may find that not only might a lot of folks have addresses on the ground and in orbit, but also in ultra-low orbits, and the mesosphere and stratosphere too. As I like to say, the sky is not the limit. So one of the awful things about COVID is that it made it impossible to do a lot of the gathering and conferences that not only allowed people with shared interests to learn more about those in person, but also to meet each other, and I'm rather glad that's drawing to a close. As you probably know, I've been doing some public speaking yet now that I can and the episode came out a bit early today in order to allow me and Sarah to head down to Arlington, Virginia for the biggest space-based conference out there, the annual International Space Development Conference hosted by the National Space Society, of whom I and many of you are proud members, at Astra, and I'll be talking there this Sunday but we're arriving Thursday evening and I hope to get to meet some of you in person then, and if you can't make it I hope you'll join us virtually. This is one of the silver linings of COVID, a lot of advances in teleconferencing, Zoom and its cousins, and maybe more importantly, a lot more people growing comfortable using those technologies. For most of us on the geekier side of things, chatting with friends on Discord or gaming on Roll20 is hardly new, but it's gotten easier and more streamlined, and also had a lot more folks willing to use it for business and recreation, which is nice for a lot of us who prefer the versatility of pencil and paper role-playing games over MMORPGs, because everyone's gotten a lot more comfortable joining online, meaning we can't keep our gaming groups even when nobody lives in the same state anymore. I've been rolling 20-sided dice for over a quarter of a century now, and while computer games have improved a lot since then, I still prefer pencil and paper, but I definitely like being able to use all those computer resources for world building and campaign crafting. That is where Ward Anvil, the award-winning world building toolset, comes in, because they have created the hands-down best suite of software for gaming and world building out there so that you can use all those awesome computerized options while still enjoying the versatility of pencil and paper gaming, or fantasy and sci-fi novel writing for that matter. It's great for DMs and folks wanting to let their audiences peek into the novel setting more collaboratively as it does have a free version and also has ways to monetize your content on platforms like Patreon, Ko-fi, or your own storefront, and you can share that content selectively to keep content hidden. Whether you're managing a campaign or writing a novel, whether you're making city or dungeon maps or family genealogies and world history, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy genres, World Anvil lets you forge your setting better, easier, and more interactively than anything I've worked with before. They also have an amazing collection of great tutorial videos, so not only can you learn how to use Ward Anvil, but so can anyone you're trying to introduce to it, though it is very intuitive. Ward Anvil offers Wikipedia-like articles for your world setting, interactive maps, timelines, an RPG campaign manager, and a full novel writing software, all the tools you need to run your RPG campaign or write your novel, and never lose your notes again. If you'd like to give Ward Anvil a try and let it help you forge new worlds, just click the link in this episode's description. So as I mentioned, I'll be at the International Space Development Conference this weekend and I will be giving a live talk on megastructures there instead of our normal end of the month livestream Q&A, and I hope you'll join us for that. 
Preparing that talk on megastructures had me thinking on all the ones I couldn't cover or haven't covered in episodes down the years, and I decided it was time to reboot our original episode of SFIA, where we discussed a lot of megastructures in a quick summary, and on June 9th we will have an expanded, two-hour episode, the Megastructural Compendium, covering roughly a hundred enormous space structures and artificial worlds we may one day build. Before that, we will be starting June off by asking what ancestor simulations are and if we might be living inside one and if we could possibly know. And then the weekend after is Sci-Fi Sunday, June 12th, where we will look at the Siloian Hypothesis, the concept that some ancient civilization like intelligent dinosaurs may once have dwelt on Earth long ago. We will also ask what would remain of humanity's accomplishments millions of years from now if we suddenly died off. Now if you want alerts when events and episodes are coming out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notification bell. And if you enjoyed this episode please hit the like button, share it with others, and leave a comment below. You can also join the conversation on any of our social media forums, find our audio-only versions of the show, or donate to help support future episodes, and all those options and more are listed in the links in the episode description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.